it is it is good to be back here. Um, thank you for all the uh, encouragement and the text messages and the prayers and um, all those that that stepped up when when I had to stay home. Uh, but but I'm doing well. I'm thankful that God has sustained us and our and our family. And and more importantly, what a humbling thought that on Easter morning. Uh, the two vocational pastors were gone and the church still gathered. Um, so what, what a testimony to God's people. This, this is why we exist, to worship him. And you don't need us. I mean, we hope that you'll keep us, but, but you don't need us. Uh, but, but we're going to continue. This, this is the sermon text that I was going to preach on Easter Sunday. So, so you're going to get it. I've, I've been sitting on it for quite some time. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, the, I, I gave the text wrong. The bulletin has the wrong passage. It's going to be verses 19 through 25. We'll have it on the screen, but we're going to read that in just a minute. But, but, but basically, at this point in this book, at this point in Hebrews, he's, he's laid the groundwork, and these verses mark a shift towards exhortation. That, that's what he's going to spend these verses doing. He's going to be exhorting his readers. He's going to be exhorting us, and it's, it's going to continue uh, really for the rest of the, the letter. And so what he's done up to this point, big picture, is he's made one point very clear, which is that Jesus is better. That's been the theme of Hebrews. Over the months, we've seen over and over again that the main idea of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He is the superior son. He's the heir of all things through whom the entire world was created, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. There's no one and no thing in all creation that can compare to Jesus. He is, he's better than it all. He's, better than the, he's, be, he's a better word than the prophets spoke. He's better than any angel or messenger from God. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He offers a a rest that's better than the rest that Joshua offered to God's people. He's a better high priest than Aaron or any of Aaron's sons. He's like Melchizedek, but he's better than even Melchizedek. He's established a better covenant that's built on better promises, and he's entered a better sanctuary. By the nature of his sacrifice, it's a better sacrifice. We've seen over and over again that Jesus is better. And specifically, as it relates to your relationship with God, your creator, there is no better way, there's no other way for you to know God. There's no other way for you to have peace with God, for you to have eternal life than through the Son. That's why he came. He came to secure a relationship with God for you. And you, you come to God through him because he's better. He's only and so this morning, as, as, we, as we look at verses 19 through 25, be, because of what Jesus has done, because of who he is, and what he's done in his death and resurrection, because he's now a great high priest who's, who's serving in, as a, a high priest in heaven right now, because of all that, in these three verses, there's three things that you ought to do. So there's three commands that we're going to see in this passage He's, the central theological argument has concluded in the book of Hebrews. The author now turns to some practical applications of what he has so effectively argued for the past nine and a half chapters, ten chapters. He's never content simply to present theology without showing its practical relevance. So that's what he's going to do. We're going to get to the practical relevance. And so as I said, this, this passage marks a clear shift towards exhortation. And so there's going to be three things, three imperatives in this text or commands and these imperatives are the focus. And so the, the title of the sermon is just those three imperatives, drawing near, 
holding fast, loving one another. Those are the three imperatives. So that's, that's the takeaway. That's the practical thing. If you're here and you're a Christian, you should leave here remembering that title, remembering this is what I'm supposed to do. This is how I heed God's word from Hebrews 19, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And so what we'll see, I'll read it in a second, but, but the logic of the passage is, he, here's two things that are true of a Christian, and because you have these things as Christians, you ought to do these things in obedience. So because you have this, this is what you do. In other words, what you do is motivated because of what's objectively true of you. You'll, you'll see it in the text. Since you have this, since this is true, let us do these things. That, that's how this, the, these, these verses relate to one another. So, so let me read the passage and then I'll pray for us. And, and you'll see, I think you'll see pretty clearly what I'm, what I'm talking about here. So Hebrews 10, starting verse 19. Therefore, brethren, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me me pray for us, and then we'll look at, at these verses. Uh, Father, our confidence, even as we read this text, our confidence reminded to enter your presence comes from Christ alone. He's died, he's risen, and now as, as our resurrected Savior, he offers a new and living way for us to be reconciled to you and to have peace with you, a relationship with you. And so I pray from, from these verses that we as your people would heed your word, encourage us, convict us, comfort us. And I pray all these things in Christ's name, who is our great high priest, amen. All right, so the way that we're, we're going to work through this is, is here, uh, the, the outline is going to be this. What we have, okay, that's verses 19, 20, and 21. So, so because this is true, second point, this is what we do. First call to action, verse 22, draw near. Our third point, the second call to action, what we do, hold fast. And then fourthly, fourth point, the third exhortation, what we do, love one another. So it's what we have, First, and then three, what we do is draw near, hold fast, love one another, or encourage one another. But that's our outline. So let's start there with what we have. He's laying the foundation. He's going to get ready to exhort them. But before he exhorts them, he wants to encourage them regarding what's true of them. He wants to remind them what he's been saying the past several chapters. He wants them to know what they have. He wants you to know what you have. So he doesn't give you a naked command saying, hey, just go do this for no reason. He's going to say, do this, but here's the reason. What you have leads to doing what he's calling you to. So look there at verses 19 through 21. There are two objective realities. There are two present possessions of the Christian. And it's set off by the word since. So look there at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have... So here's the first objective reality. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Verse 21, second objective reality, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. These are the two objective realities that the Christian has. Since we have confidence in our holy places and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Right? This is what you have and this is what is gonna propel him into this is what you do. 
And so the Christian who possesses these two things, the natural response, as we, as we meditate on and recognize what we have, we will then respond positively to the exhortation. So that if we're not doing, if we're not responding to the exhortations, it's because we don't recognize what we have. So it's the first, quickly, the first objective reality, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. This has, this has been a theme of his in, in chapter six and seven, and especially chapter eight. He, he's highlighted the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And so he says, he, even if you, if you write this down in, in chapter eight, verse one, he begins, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, the true tent. And so, so he spent time expounding what it means that Jesus is in the actual holy of holies, not, not a man-made temple. He's in the true heavenly places. Christians have confidence because of where Jesus has gone on their behalf. And, and his point, the contrast is, this is, this is rare for the, the people of God. Prior to the new covenant, the holy places, access to the holy places was severely limited. It was off limits except to the appointed priest at the appointed time. Access to God under the old covenant was not able to be done freely and boldly. It was carefully done and fearfully done. But now, he says, since we have a great high priest, we have confidence to go into a place that we've never been able to go because of what Jesus has done. Access has been granted, and it's been granted, according to verse 19, by the blood of Jesus, which is just a reference to his death. When we see blood in Hebrews, it's a reference to to the entire act of his death, his crucifixion. The sacrifice of the lamb. And because of the, the sacrifice of Christ, because of his blood that was shed, right, there's a new covenant. It has established a new covenant. And this blood purifies completely and permanently and eternally, something that the old covenant blood couldn't do. And so because of what Jesus has done in his death, the blood gives us access to enter freely. We draw near to God through the blood of Christ, our great high priest. And through him, notice there in verse 20, through him is the way or the route that we travel. We have confidence into all the places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, not, not the big curtain that, that was in, in Jerusalem, but he clarifies that is through his flesh, through his body that was broken for us. His death has redefined the relationship between God and his people. Access to God is open through Jesus, through the new covenant. The, the doors are wide open. Jesus has procured a new and living way. He is a living hope because he's a living way and it's only open because Jesus is alive. He's not still dead. Jesus rose from the dead and now lives forever to make intercession for his people who draw near to God through him. This is the significance of the resurrection. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, he doesn't live to serve as our high priest. If the grave is not empty, there's no access to God in a new covenant. This is why we we can't take or leave the resurrection. We take it or we have nothing at all. The grave was empty. Jesus did rise from the dead. And because of that, we have access into the holy places through his body. Our access will never be denied so long as Christ is alive. So that's the first objective reality. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places through the blood of Jesus, the new and living way, through his body. But there's a second objective reality, something else we have. Look there in verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. 
Again, this is something that, that the author of Hebrews has already gone great lengths to great lengths to establish. Jesus is a great high priest, unlike any that came before. He's better than all who came before, specifically because he's done something that no other high priest could ever have done. He opened the way. And not only does he serve as high priest, but, but notice the, the, the language he serves as priest over the house of God. That's an authority reference. He is over the house. He's the one who has authority over God's people. He isn't just a servant in God's house, but he is the, the servant over God's house, the great high priest over God's house, which means that those who come to God through him can be assured that the one who has authority over the house, the ruler, the king, the Lord, over them is their faithful and merciful high priest, the one who urges them to draw near to God with full confidence. So not only is he the great high priest who's entered the holy place on our behalf, he has also paved the way for access that we can even follow him there. He laid down his life and paved the way for us to come after him, and that would have been unheard of under the old. And that's the point. We, we have a new way. We have a great high priest over the house that's paved the way, so access, the, the present possessions of the new covenant believer are, are unprecedented. And that's what the author is making clear. These are two things that he wants every Christian to know. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have these things here and now. These are two present possessions that you have. You have confidence to enter the holy places and you have a great high priest who laid down his life and and gave himself up so that you could be cleansed and purified and that you could have access boldly into God's presence. You could have a relationship with him. And so if you're a believer, if you're someone holding fast to Christ, trusting and hoping in him, these, these two realities are what drive you to the exhortations that we're going to see. And so look at those. But, but, but before we look at those, before we look at the exhortations, I just want to make clear, if you are not a believer, these possessions aren't yours. So if your faith isn't in Jesus Christ, if you're not holding fast to him, you don't have these possessions. They are not yours now. You don't have access into God's presence. You you don't have a great high priest who laid down his life for you. Which means the exhortations, all I'm going to say after this is not for you. What you need more than to heed these exhortations is access to God. What you need more than anything is is a a way to to relate to the God who made you and and for whom you were made to to love and enjoy forever. That's why you were created, to know God. And, And if you don't know God through Jesus, you don't know God. And so what you need more than anything is to come to God through Jesus. That that relationship with God can come to you the exact same way it came to the first readers of Hebrews, the same way it's come to everyone here who does know God, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. And so just just hear me say, apart from Christ, you cannot know God. Apart from Christ, you cannot have peace with God. Apart from Christ, you can have no forgiveness of sins. Apart from Christ, you have no living hope. Apart from Christ, you have none of this. However, in Christ, you can have it all. All of it is yours freely and abundantly through Jesus Christ who laid down his life for you. And so what you need more than anything else is is, is to turn from sin and to trust in Jesus and come to God through him. And so I would love to tell you how to do that. And so I'd love to talk with you afterwards at the end of this service. As we're singing the last song, come. I would love to talk to you. Will would love to talk talk to you. If, If you're with your parent, ask them. They would love to talk with you because what you need to know is that you can have it all in Jesus, through Jesus, but apart from Jesus, you have none of it. Let's look at the three exhortations, our next three points, what we do. So what we have 
leads to what we do. And there's three exhortations. First exhortation there in verse 22, let us draw near. So because the way has been opened, because access has been granted, what else would we do besides draw near? That's the question. Why, why wouldn't we draw near? The unfathomable riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ have been purchased and freely bestowed on those who come to God through Jesus Christ. So why wouldn't we draw near? I mean, I thought about this. This is a very uh, weak illustration, but, but I thought about complimentary breakfasts at hotels. So, so whenever I'm booking a hotel, which isn't often, and when you have four kids, you don't go to hotels very often, but whenever I'm booking a hotel, whether it's, it's, it's for a conference or convention or if, if we're going for family, when I'm booking a hotel, I'm always going to book a hotel that has a complimentary breakfast. And I get it. They're, they're, they're pretty much all the same. They all got those nasty eggs and, and those stale biscuits. I get it. They're all pretty much the same. They're not all that good. But for me, if I'm traveling, if I'm on vacation, I want breakfast. And if I can have it for free, if someone else is going to purchase it and prepare it and, and lay it out and put it in a warmer, if they're going to do that and all I have to do is show up, count me in. I'm going to draw near between 9 and 11. Right? And, and so it is with the work of Christ. He's done all the work. Salvation has been purchased. Access to God has been provided. All we do is show up and reap the benefits. All we do is draw near. Why wouldn't you, believer, draw near and live relating to the God who has saved you and and beckoned you to draw near? And just to be clear, this idea of drawing near, it's not something that just happens once. And then 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 you stop drawing near. It's It's not something you just do when you wake up in the morning or when you go to bed at night. For the new covenant believer, for the one who's been brought near to God through the blood of Christ, near is the place we live. We draw near through Jesus, and that's where we, that's where we dwell, in the presence, the Holy of Holies. We don't, we don't come into the Holy and then leave, and then come in and then leave. No, because of Christ, we go there and we stay. We live in his presence. That's where the Christian dwells. That's your address. And so when it says, let us draw near, it's not to draw near at a specific time and leave. It's, it's to draw near and stay there. Trusting in Christ, communion with our God. In his presence, experiencing intimate relationship with him. So draw near, verse 21 says, but it continues, let us draw near 22, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so this is how we draw near, with a true heart in full assurance of faith with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. He's he's addressed this already. And the point is that our drawing near can be done confidently and boldly and even joyfully because of what Christ has done for us. Our acceptability depends fully upon the priestly work of Christ. We've been cleansed. We no longer have the guilty conscience from which the old covenant couldn't free us. So, so the sacrifice has been made. The conscience is clean because we are actually clean because the blood of the new covenant cleanses perfectly. So we don't wait for the next year for the day of atonement for, for the priest to go in on our behalf. No, we, we don't have to have a guilty conscience because Jesus has paid it all. And so we, we draw near confidently. We don't, we don't fear rejection. We are accepted because of Jesus. So we're called to draw near. Second thing there in verse 23, what we do is we hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering or unswervingly. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope unswervingly 
or the hope we profess. The second, second exhortation is really similar to verses 14 through 16 all the way back in chapter 4. So in chapter 4, verse 14, 14, he says, Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Same thing here. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold unswervingly. And so what, what he's doing, the, the second exhortation is a call to persevere. Hold fast to your confession, to your hope. This has been one of the main aims throughout the book of Hebrews. He wants you to persevere. He wants you to hold fast. He wants you to, to, to grab onto Jesus and not let go. So since we have confidence in holy places, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, not only do we draw near, but we hold fast. We hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We, we don't get thrown off course. We don't forsake Jesus. We hold fast without wavering. And notice the motivation. Why do we hold fast? Not because we hope that we got the right rope, not that we hope we, we're on the right track, but we hold fast because he who promised is faithful. We hold fast because God is the one who's promised to save us. He, he's the one who's promised to cleanse us from sins and to welcome us into his presence. And so the basis for maintaining this confession of hope without wavering is God's faithfulness. He does what he's promised. And so specifically here in Hebrews, holding fast, persevering until the end is what, is what guarantees or results in salvation. It, it, what he means on the other side alternatively would be that if you fail to persevere, if you fail to hold fast to Christ until the end, not only are you refusing to believe that God's able to do what he promised, but it also means that you're not going to make it to the end. And we'll see that the next week's passage is a hard passage, but, but it's, it follows after this. And his point is that if you don't hold fast, you're not going to get to the end. If you fall away from Jesus, if you let go of him, you're not getting to the end. I mean, another illustration, think, think about you're, you're, you're out in the middle of the Atlantic and you're in the middle of the ocean and everywhere you look, there's no land. And, and maybe, maybe if you're in good shape, you could tread water for a couple hours, but, but, but maybe it's less than that. But imagine you're, you're at the point where your ability to keep your head above the water is waning and you, and you know, I'm going down soon. You're hopeless. You're going to die in the middle of the ocean. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a, a boat appears. Salvation has come in. And from the boat, a, a lifeline comes and, and it's within your reach and you grab the lifeline. You're saved. But what happens if, if in the process of, of you being pulled into the boat, a, a big wave comes or, or wind is whipping around or something else happens and, and you lose grip of the rope? Are you, are you still saved? Your rescue, your salvation is contingent upon you holding on to that rope. That rope is your salvation. And, and you let go when you're safe in the boat. When your salvation has, has been realized and I think this illustration paints a picture of what the author of Hebrews is trying to argue. There's no salvation apart from holding fast to Christ until the end. And so he doesn't want you to ask, well, what about the, the assurance of salvation? What about the security of belief? That's not on his radar. His radar is you hold fast to Christ and you never let go. No matter what happens, you don't let go because if you let go of Jesus, you lose everything. That's his point. And so to believe that you can trust in Christ at one point in your life and then totally abandon him, totally let go of the rope, while at the same time thinking you're going to be saved in the end would be unfathomable to the author of Hebrews. Perseverance is the goal because perseverance is necessary. Leaving Christ and not holding fast until the end is to lose everything. 
we hold fast our confession. We hold fast to Jesus. We draw near and we hold fast. And then finally, the last thing we do, the final exhortation here in verses 24 and 25, is we love one another or we encourage one another. And so I think this is the most important, I think, exhortation of this passage. The first two exhortations were not explicitly corporate. They weren't clearly dependent on other people, but this third exhortation is. It is contingent on other people. The third exhortation cannot be carried out in isolation from a a local body, from, from a group of Christians, a local church. So this third exhortation, you can't do it on your own. And so notice what he says. Look at this last exhortation, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So let us, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider how to stir up or provoke one another to love and good deeds. Let us encourage one another. This third exhortation, this third point of application is this. Let us consider, let us think about how to encourage other Christians. Specifically, how to encourage other Christians to love and good works. And so the author of Hebrews, through the author of Hebrews, God is commanding every Christian, set your mind to considering how to encourage your brothers or sisters to love and good works. Consider how to love your brother and sister. I mean, when's the last time you've, you've thought about that? What, what does it look like for, for me to stir up my brothers and sisters? How do I stir up my brothers and sisters? Fortunately, verse 25 gives us those answers to those questions. Just look at verse 25. So so verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another and love good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So this tells us that one of the main ways for you to stir up one another to love and good works is by regularly meeting together with other Christians. That's how you do it. You show up. Do you want to know what it looks like to stir up one another to love and good works? Do you want to know how it happens? You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You you do it by meeting together with your church family. I mean, this is the clear implication of verse 25. The exhortation is to consider how to stir up one another, how to encourage one another. And the caution is don't neglect meeting together, which means if you want to do this, you better not stop doing this. Encouraging one another and meeting together go hand in hand. You don't encourage others without meeting together with the body. That's his point. An essential component in the life of a Christian is regularly meeting together with other Christians. And it's not primarily at coffee shops or dinner tables, though those are good places to do it. The primary place wherever, the primary place it happens is where the church has agreed to meet together. Family Life Center, 335 Fox Hill Road, 1045 every Sunday. It used to be 11 o'clock in the old sanctuary. Maybe it'll be there again. But, but whenever the local body said, this is when we are gathering as God's people, that's where and when we meet together for the purpose of encouraging one another. And, and we show up when we gather with the clear understanding that, that I'm coming to this gathering and, and one of the primary purposes for me coming to church today is to encourage other Christians, to stir up other Christians. Your church attendance is not primarily about you. It's about your brothers and sisters, the ones that you are members with, parts of one body, right? Do you know if you're a Christian who's a member of this church, you are one body part among many. 
And when the church gathers, the body collectively needs parts individually. And so you gather for the benefit of the body, the, the, the whole body that's corporately gathered. Other body parts, other members need to be encouraged. And so they say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church today because I've had a terrible week or a terrible year. And so I'm going to go to church today and God uses other Christians, relationships with other Christians within that body to encourage the the downtrodden or downcast or discouraged Christian. And so living in, living the Christian life is a community endeavor. And so I know this is true of me and I assume it's true for you. Sometimes we are in need of being encouraged. Sometimes we are, I am cold hearted towards others, towards you. Sometimes I'm cold-hearted. Why, am I, why, do I, why do I do this for my brothers and sisters? Sometimes I'm, I'm lacking good works, serving others. And when that's the case, the community of believers is called to stir me up, to stir one another up, to encourage me. And you do that by showing up. And, 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 and maybe it's, it's having a conversation with me, but, but just your presence among the membership of the body is an encouragement to the downcast Christian. Which means stepping back and, and looking at this big picture in the book of Hebrews, the temptation to fall away and to forsake Christ is combated by Christian encouragement. By brothers and sisters who are committed to encouraging and caring for one another. This is the design for the church. The church is a remedy against falling away in apostasy. And so when you neglect meeting together with other Christians, guess what doesn't happen? You don't heed this exhortation. You are prevented from stirring others up in the way that God primarily has intended for you to stir others up. You cannot follow this third command without meeting together with your local church family. And so neglecting to meet together prohibits a Christian from encouraging others. It's as simple as that. And the danger, what's at stake here when the body isn't encouraging one another, when the body isn't meeting together, the danger is that individuals fall away from Christ. That's the point here. When you, when you don't come together, your brothers and sisters are, are in danger of falling away from Jesus. According to the author of Hebrews, here, here's what one commentator says. What they must not do is to stop meeting together on a regular basis. Apparently, some in the community were abandoning their gathering together for worship. God would never forsake them, but some of those who had been associated with the Christian community were forsaking God. Whatever the reason, the author sees their discontinuance of common fellowship and worship, listen to this, as fatal for perseverance in the faith. Encouragement cannot take place in isolation. Thus what they must do is gather together for mutual encouragement. And so failure to meet together regularly with a church family, a local church, is a a failure to meet together regularly with other Christians is fatal for perseverance. I mean, I, I just want you to hear that. A failure to meet together regularly with other Christians is fatal for perseverance. It can kill your brother and sister. I mean, I want that conviction to drive church growth. I want us to have a huge church growth movement in this church, but I don't want to have good programs. I don't want to have like fancy worship. I don't want to have any of those things. I want, I want people to recognize I'm showing up because the eternal security of my brother and sister is dependent on me being there. I don't want you to come to church because you don't want me to call you and say, hey, where have you been? 
I mean, if that drives you, I mean, that's fine. But I want the primary reason you come to church is because you recognize that a failure to do so is detrimental to the eternal life of your brothers and sisters. I mean, so now it's springtime with, with pollen and grass growing. It's time to break out our lawnmowers and our, our weed eaters and our blowers. And so, so the, the trend now, which we have bought into, is these, these battery-powered lawn tools. And, and so you have this, this battery that is made for this weed eater. And, and the battery goes in the weed eater, and, and you can work for an hour and 15 minutes until the battery dies. But, but it, when the battery is charged, and it's joined with this weed eater, you can go. But inevitably... The time comes when the battery dies. It was made to be recharged. And so when the battery's dead, you can, you can pull that little trigger all you want, but when, it, when it's dead, it's dead. And similarly, the connection being made here in Hebrews is that Christians are made for gathering with other Christians. You can neglect meeting with others for a while. You can, you can get off the charger for a little bit, but eventually you're going to die. Eventually, the lack of encouragement, the lack of being spurred on, the, the lack of being encouraged to hold fast to Christ, it's going to take its toll. And a Christian does not run very long apart from gathering with other Christians. You can't. You weren't made for it. And you can, you can tell others, oh, I'm doing fine. You can tell me, I'm doing great, pastor. But if you're not gathering with a body, I think you're lying to others and to me and yourself. Because God made the church, he made the family to be together. And here's here's the thing. This is how beautiful the local church is. Every member who's coming, considering how to spur on others, is met by others who are considering how to spur you on. And and so there's this, this mutually beneficial relationship between members in the body. And so, yes, you go to encourage others, but also you go and others are able to encourage you. And so when you neglect to do that, not only are you not encouraging others, not only do you, be, do you become complicit in the falling away of your brother or sister, but you yourself are not being encouraged. So that now you are in danger of falling away. Which means not only that your neglect of gathering together can prove fatal for the perseverance of your brothers and sisters, but also your neglect of gathering together can prove fatal to your own perseverance. And so let these convictions drive your church attendance. Do it for the souls of your brothers and sisters and do it for your own soul. And and let me just say, if, if it's not this church, find a church. I recognize I'm not that great of a preacher Right? We're not that, that, that appealing of a church. We, we got some weird quirks about us, and I get that. But we're, we're going to gather together. We're going to preach God's word. We're, we're going to sing, and we're going to worship, and we're going to try and grow as a family relationally to encourage and spur one another on. And we're, we're going to get in each other's mess because that's what we're made to do because if I, if I, don't, if I don't open myself to my, my family, I'm not going to be able to grow. If all I want to do is just hide and pretend like everything's fine, I, I'm not going to grow. And so, so if you want to go to another church, you have my blessing. But, but gather with God's people because that's what you are made for if you're a Christian. And, and so the, the final point of application, and, and this, this is the last thing I'll say. I want to end here on this last exhortation. Next week, so, so I'm not really addressing the, the, the last section, the last section of the last verse, so I'll pick that up next week because next week's passage is tied to there in verse 25. But, but here's the last point of application. Perseverance cannot be separated from gathering together. 
Perseverance cannot be separated from gathering together. And so your church membership, your participation, your ministry of attendance, if you're a church member, you are part of a ministry called the ministry of attendance. It's the easiest ministry you could ever be part of. You don't have to do anything but show up once a week. That's a ministry. And this ministry of attendance play a crucial role in the ability of Christians to persevere, your own and that of your brothers and sisters. And if we get this, it's going to change the way we view church attendance. Because there's a responsibility that comes with being a Christian, a responsibility for my own spiritual well-being, and also a responsibility for the spiritual well-being of others, of those that I've covenanted together to. And when I'm neglecting meeting together with other Christians, I'm failing to take responsibility for their well-being, and I'm, I'm neglecting my own spiritual health as well. I mean, yeah, I should have quiet times between me and Jesus, yes, but I'm not saved to be an individual body. That is not a category in the New Testament. You are saved to become part of the body of Christ, which means you function with others. I mean, don't be a hand that stays at home all year and never comes and is part part of the body because the hand is useless apart from the body and the body doesn't benefit when the hand isn't part of it. If you're a believer, the spirit has been given to you and you are, are gifted to serve the body. And I would love for you to serve here, but if you don't want to serve here, find a place to serve. Well, this exhortation, I, I want to end here because I think this has really important relevance to us here today because we're coming out of a, over a year, 15 months, where neglecting to meet together has been easily excused and accepted, even mandated. And even, I would add, justified in some cases. So you may say that. But, but just big picture, we have been forced to neglect meeting together in some, in some cases. And my point is simply to stand here on, on this side of the pandemic. It's not over. I don't, I don't believe it's over, but, but, but we're on this side at least. We're, we're closer to the end. And I just want to say as clearly as, and as emphatically as possible to the, the Christians, to the members of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good, word, good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. I'm afraid that that some of us are in the habit of not coming. We don't really have a reason not to come anymore. And and I want to, from from a heart of compassion and a, a shepherding heart, I want to call you, come back. Come back. Don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And so come back. We miss you. We need you, and you need us. And so let us, let us meet together. Let me, let me pray as, as we close.